0: This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation.
1: Good evening. Have
2: you seen this one? No.
1: I'm going to start us on time because we have a pretty full schedule for tonight. So I'd like to begin by welcoming you on behalf of our sponsors, the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center and the Department of Religious Studies, and thank the IHC and the Cordano Endowment in Catholic Studies and the Osted elihy Fund, and particularly Meher Mowbron for their generous contributions in support of this conference. My name is Ann Taves, and I'm the Cordano Professor of Catholic Studies, and one of the organizers of this conference, along with Jeanette Peterson, here in the front row, who's Professor of Art History, and Jared Lindahl, two seats over, who's a graduate student in Religious Studies. We've got a full program, as I said, so I'm going to give you a quick overview of the conference, of which this evening's panel is a part and then introduce our panelists. The purpose of the conference is to bring three fields of study, the comparative study of mystical traditions, art history, and cognitive neuroscience, together around the theme of sensory perception with a particular focus on synesthesia. Setting up a conversation across disciplines is not an easy task. And to help out both our presenters and our audience, We've provided you with a list of terms and definitions, which you'll find on the back of your program. (laughs) As you can see from the sheet, we're defining synesthesia as instances in which the experience of a sensation in one sensory modality triggers an involuntary sensation in another sensory modality. Sensory modalities are like sight, hearing, taste, touch, etc., to fit the definition, this triggering needs to happen in the absence of normally normal sensory stimulation of the other sense. Another name for this would be cross-modal perception. The most common examples are seeing specific numbers or letters in particular colors, hearing words that elicit taste sensations or musical notes that conjure up images. When multiple sense modalities are engaged by normal sensory sim- stimulation, we are referring to that as multimodal sense perception. People have described synesthetic type perceptions for a long time. Only recently, however, have neuroscientists established that this is indeed a distinct neurological phenomenon that occurs in a small number of otherwise ordinary people. There is are some scientific studies that suggest that synesthesia is more common in highly creative persons, and there is no doubt that artists, writers, and musicians have been fascinated by the phenomenon. Descriptions of synesthetic-type phenomena also occur in religious and mystical texts. Some artists, such as Vasily Kandinsky, explicitly link synesthetic, aesthetic, and religious experience. While scientific work on synesthesia generally assumes that synesthetic perceptions are involuntary and permanent, there is one published study of Buddhist meditators that provides evidence suggesting that synesthetic perceptions can be cultivated through meditation practices. Our hope is that bringing these fields into conversation will stimulate questions for further research in both the sciences and the humanities. We begin this evening with a panel made up of specialists in the study of three distinct mystical traditions, Christian, Islamic, and Jewish. Because this is a new line of inquiry and we really didn't know what our, um, these scholars were going to come up with, we framed the question broadly, asking each of them to discuss the role that sensory experience has played in each of these mystical traditions Paying particular attention to any instances of synesthetic discourse or perception. In the first morning session tomorrow, we'll continue with two presentations by historians of art, Becerra Pencheva and Kevin Dan, the first focusing on Byzantine icons and the second on modern art. In the second morning session, V.S. Ramachandran. A well-known cognitive neuroscience who's published on synesthesia will provide an overview of the scientific research on synesthesia and initiate a five-way conversation among all the presenters. Actually, that's six-way. Tonight's three presenters, to now turn to the actual introductions, are Bernard McGinn on this end, Emeritus Professor of the History of Christianity at the University of Chicago and the Tipton Visiting Professor in Catholic Studies this quarter at UCSB. He's the author of numerous books including most notably a projected seven-volume work on the history of Christian mysticism, four volumes of which have already appeared in print. To, on his far left, is James Morris, until recently who until recently held the Sharjah Chair of Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter in England and is now Professor of Theology at Boston College. He's an expert in the Islamic mystical tradition and has published extensively on the thought of Ibn Arabi. Elliot Wolfson, in the middle, is the Abraham Lieberman Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University. He's an expert on the Jewish mystical tradition and has published numerous volumes on Kabbalah. Each of the panelists will speak for about 25 minutes, followed by a response by Jared Lindahl and discussion among the panelists and with the audience. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Anne. It's a delight to be here, not only for this event, which is uh, so interesting and promising, but also to be here for the entire spring quarter and to have a little break from the, the uh, frigid winters of Chicago here in your delightful climate. Um, and also, I, I must say that uh, this is a continuation of something that's been very important to me, which is the uh, uh, comparative study of mysticism, uh, because I think that that has been a very large part of the revival of interest and academic study of mysticism has come not only, not so much out of the look at individual traditions, which we must do, but of engaging in this kind of discussion. And for my own work, I know over the past 20, 25 years, it would have been impossible for me to write the kind of history I'm trying to do without having the discussion with scholars of Islam and Jew, the Jewish mystical traditions among whom I My uh, friend and colleague, Elliot Wolfson, certainly ranks very high. But in this context, we're moving that narrower ecumenism out to a much wider vein, which is not only looking at religious traditions, but putting them in dialogue with these other uh, interests in uh, sensory experience and synesthesia. So um, what I'm going to try to do is to contextualize synesthesia a little bit in the wider uh, discussion of discourse regarding sensory language in Christian mysticism in 25 minutes or less. <laughs> in the study of Christian mysticism, synesthesia is part of a more general issue of how sensory language of any kind can be used about human contact with God. If God is totally distinct from everything else in his utter transcendence, that is, if God is literally no thing How can God become the object of sensation or even be described in the language of sensation? And yet Christians admitted that God had accommodated himself to humans in many ways, and the Hebrew Bible is full of divine manifestations, though it remains ambiguous about whether God can really be seen, heard, or otherwise made subject of sensory experience. In the New Testament, of course, God can be sensed, both metaphorically And actually, because Christians believe that God became man in Jesus Christ. As Bernard of Clairvaux put it in his sermons on the Song of Songs, humans who had lost the ability to perceive God spiritually could only begin to return to God by means of carnal, bodily, and sense experience, the sense experience of the God-man. And his example, what Bernard called our amor carnalis Christi, carnal love of Christ, which is the necessary starting point. <clears throat> After Christ's ascension into heaven, of course, the nascent uh, Jesus movement who became Christianity, was confronted with the issue of how far and in what ways it may be possible to have present contact with Christ through the senses. <clears throat> the prevailing answer to this question for more than a thousand years was first clearly set forth by the great mystical theologian Origen of Alexandria. Lived in the middle of the third century. Arjun's answer was a distinction between the outer physical senses and the inner senses characteristic of the true, that is, the spiritual man. Arjun noted that the Bible not only spoke of two persons in every human, the inner and outer person. There are many Pauline texts that uh, say that. But he also noted that uh, sensate language is used very often in the Bible to describe human contact with God. This is especially true of the Song of Songs, that series of erotic poems which both Jews and Christians interpreted as a palimpsest of the love of God for his community and for each member of that community. So in the prologue to his noted commentary on the Song of Songs, Arjun puts it this way, describing these two sets of senses belonging to the two persons. He says, just as the different ages we have mentioned, that is youth and maturity, are denoted by the same words both for the outer man and the inner man, so also you will find the names of the members of the body transferred to those of the soul. Or rather, the faculties and powers of the soul are to be called its members, spiritual senses. These spiritual senses fuse feeling and knowing, forming an affective intentionality which Origen describes in another text as a sensuality which has nothing sensual about it. When he actually puts this theory into practice in reading the sensory images of the song, one soon sees that all these spiritual senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, etc., are actually modalities of inner knowing of God and of the divine mysteries. And this view, in a sense, accords with the Greek and largely platonic background to Origen's thought which not only distinguished between the outer body and the inner soul, which Arjun could read as Paul's two men, two mankind's inner and outer, but Greek thought also privileged the experience of sight as the noblest sense, the analog for our sight of God, our contemplation of God, theoria theou, the goal, both for Platonists and Christians, of our contact, possible contact with God. Although Origen calls upon the language of the exterior senses to help him explain their more powerful interior counterparts, however, he does not generally attempt to fuse these senses into one, nor does he seem to favor using the language of one sense to replace another. So it's hard to find any synesthesia in the, the more strict sense that uh, Anne has described, I think, in Origen's in use of the language of the interior senses. Now this is not to say that the use of synesthetic language is absent from ancient Christian texts. Among the examples are some passages from the sayings of the Desert Fathers, those stories of the early uh, monastics began to be gathered in the 4th century and were put into collections in the 5th century and in the 6th. A number of stories in these sayings of the Fathers, the Patrum, include synesthetic accounts especially of how the words of the desert teachers became visible to their hearers. For example, uh, the followers of Pachomius, the founder of Cenobitic monasticism, community monasticism, are described as, and I quote here, seeing a great flash of light in his words. And this account goes on by saying, all the brethren, all the brethren were like men drunk on wine, and saw the words coming forth from his mouth like birds of silver, gold, and precious stones, which flew over the brethren and went into the ears of those who listened well. <laughs> some of the other desert fathers also had experiences in which words are not only heard, but they're also seen in some way, often as flames of fire and sometimes as, as flashes of lightning. Such passages are certainly stenesthetic and they present uh, the paradox of synesthesia as present to the external senses. But I think more characteristic of the Christian language of sensation used about contact with God again returns us to the world of inner sensation, the world of what Gregory of Nyssa, whom I'll turn to now, called perception of God, perception of God. The Greek is aistesis teou, which is a concrete word about physical perception but taken over to indicate mental perception. In his homilies on the Song of Songs, Gregory follows Origen in distinguishing between outer and inner sensation. But he ups the ante by analyzing how the inner senses, as directed to the unknowable divine nature, are characterized by by what we might call a coincidence of opposites. The prologue to Gregory's homilies addresses the need to transform the language of outer human passionate experience found in the Song of Songs into an inner language that he describes as passionless passion. And I quote here a text. The most acute physical pleasure, by which I mean erotic passion, is used as a symbol in the exposition of these teachings. It teaches us the need for the soul to reach out to the divine nature's invisible beauty and to love it as much as the body is inclined to love what is akin to itself. The soul must transform passion into passionlessness so that when every corporeal affection has been quenched our mind may seethe with passion for the spirit alone. This kind of Paradox rests upon a foundation, the foundation stone of Gregory's mystical view of God, what he called a pectasis. It's a Greek word that signifies his teaching that every attainment of God, every time we reach God or attain God, we experience simultaneously both satisfaction and renewed hunger and pursuit. The reason being that the finite spirit is never capable of exhausting the infinite God but is always expanded from within by such encounters in order to undertake a further pursuit. And a pectasis, simultaneous satisfaction and yearning, governs Gregory's presentation of the inner senses. Let me give you one example. Commenting on the famous text from the Song of Songs about the wound of love, it's Song of Songs in 2.5 in the Septuagint version. Gregory says that to be wounded by love is to feel the dart of the chosen arrow. The chosen arrow is a text taken from Isaiah 49. And that chosen arrow, in Gregory's interpretation, Christian spiritual reading, is, of course, Christ. Christ is the chosen arrow of the Father. So God the Father shoots his arrow, who is the only begotten Son, into the soul so that the soul may be brought to life, not wounded to death, brought to life by the tincture of faith, hope, and love of the Holy Spirit that covers the arrow, kind of like a life-giving poison. Gregory then joins the active sensation of being wounded in verse 5, the wound of love, with the sensation of resting, described in Song of Songs 2.6. That's the text, his left hand is under my head, his right hand will embrace me. He puts those two together, and he presents a paradoxical spiritual inner sensation in which the soul becomes the arrow that is both at rest in God's embrace while at the same time it is in eternal motion shooting towards the infinite goal. In the voice of the bride, he puts it this way. Simultaneously, I am carried away by his act of shooting, and I am at rest in the hands of the divine bowman. Now, this kind of bifurcated reading of scriptural language about sensing God was found in Arjun and Gregory, my two examples, was central to the Christian mystical tradition. This did not mean that it was not possible for some believers to be given visions and auditions of Christ or other experiences that were presented as involving the physical senses, but the stress in early Christian mysticism is on this interior spiritual sensation, which is seen as far more important and far more powerful than mere external sensation. Augustine of Hippo, the father of Western Christian mysticism, provides us with an interesting example because it gives us both an explicit theory of outer and inner sensation as well as some famous attempts to describe the activity of the inner senses. In at least three places in his writings, The Bishop of Hippo reflects on the divinely appointed order according to which each sense organ exercises its proper role in human activity. In the 18th of his uh, Tractates on the Gospel of John, he comments on the text from John chapter 5 that the son cannot do anything of himself but only what he sees the father doing. And he comments in the following fashion. First of all, he talks about human sensation says that in human sensation we say of a person by the eyes he can see by the ears he can hear by the hands work diverse members have diverse functions that member cannot do what another member can do nevertheless because of the unity of the body the eye both sees for itself and for the ear and the ear hears for itself and the eye so for Augustine the discrete activity of the individual senses in their own realms is an integral part of created human nature. I think he would have viewed synesthesia in the external senses with suspicion, possibly a kind of delusion or result of some kind of sickness. A different perspective, however, emerges when Augustine turns to the inner senses. If the inner senses are the organs that direct us to the eternal word, The Son of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. Then, because the Son of God, as Son of God, transcends the limits of all corporeality and sensation, what we attain by different senses is all one in him. So he puts it this way in that treatise 18. He says, speaking of Christ now, as Son of God, can it his ear do what his eye does? Can it his eye do what his ear does? Or is it perhaps that he is totally sight? and totally hearing at the same time. Both to see and to hear are together in the word. To see is not one thing and to hear another, but hearing is sight and sight is hearing. Now, since human beings are made and also restored to the image of God, that is to the word of God, they too can fuse all the senses into one, but not in the outer man, only in the inner man, That is, in the heart, as Augustine puts it. So he invites his readers as follows. He says, return, return to the heart. Remove yourselves from the body. In your body you found eyes in one place, ears in another. But do you find this in your heart? So he concludes, in your flesh you hear in one place, you see in another. But in your heart you hear where you see. Now, Augustine provides a number of passages throughout his works where he attempts to describe this unity of consciousness in the inner senses. And his tendency, however, is not so much to transfer the language of one sense into another, that is the kind of synesthesia in the strict sense, but rather to appeal to a wide variety of inner senses all at the same time and thus create a network of sensory interconnections that attempts to bring out different aspects of the paradox of contact with God. The best known of these passages is the famous rapture at Ostia that he and his mother Monica enjoyed as recounted at the end of Book Nine of the Confessions. Let me just briefly talk about that text. The passage is sometimes called the vision of Ostia but it actually features very restricted use of the language of seeing. And significantly, the ascent process to God begins with Augustine and Monica opening wide the mouth of the heart, our hearts, in order to receive streams of grace from God, the fountain of life. After transcending the highest pleasures of the carnal flesh, as they put it, the experience of seeing light, Augustine and Monica, in their ardent affection for God, moved beyond all corporeal things first coming to their own minds and then above or beyond the minds so that we might advance, and I quote him here, as high as that region of unfailing plenty where you, that is God, feed Israel forever with the food of truth. Augustine continues, And while we were speaking like this and straining after wisdom, we slightly touched her with the whole effort of our heart before returning to the noise of our own mouths where the word uttered has both beginning and ending. So the dominant inner sense appealed to here is hearing, although hearing God means silencing everything else, but the goal is characterized as first of all a place of feeding or eating, and it is described in the language of a brief touch, attained both by the effort of the heart, that is love, and by rapid thought that is, in some way, intellect. At the end of the account, however, the touching, hearing, tasting are also said to involve a kind of seeing. Augustine says, if this could be sustained, this experience, if this could be sustained and other visions of a far different kind be withdrawn and this one ravish and absorb and envelop its beholder amid these these inward joys, That would be the equivalent of the endless joy of heaven, the eternal joy promised in Matthew. So the Ostia rapture features a form of synesthesia in which a brief moment of attainment is described as touching and tasting, as well as hearing and vision. While the inner senses do not exchange roles, they seem to be fused together to bring out different aspects of what lies beyond all description. The dual understanding of the senses as inner and outer was widely used both in East and West for the next thousand years and more, but not by all mystics. The visions of divine light described by the Byzantine Simeon the New Theologian, for example, do not clearly distinguish between inner and outer seeing. Furthermore, In late medieval Western mysticism, from the 12th century on, this bifurcated view of sensation as inner and outer was challenged, though not totally replaced by the emergence of mystics who presented their teaching about contact with God in language that did not clearly distinguish between inner and outer senses, but that rather involves a kind of single sensorium, in which God can be seen, heard, tasted, and especially touched. Touch becomes very important. Now these two approaches, the bifurcated model and the single sensorium, I don't think should be seen as totally opposed options. They're kind of points on a spectrum within which a whole series of interactions take place. And they make late medieval language of sensation a highly complex phenomenon. For our purposes, however, the issue is to ask whether this new mode of using sense language, that is the single sensorium model, encourage greater appeal to synesthetic formula, either of a transfer of one sense to another or of a convergence of sensory descriptions in which one kind of sense replaces or fuses with the other. I've not done any complete survey of late medieval mysticism with this question in mind, but my investigation of a few of the most somatic or sense-filled mystics of the 13th to the 14th century suggests that we should be cautious of responding in the affirmative, especially with regard to synesthesia in a more strict sense. I'll pick here really one, one example. Hadrik of Antwerp, a begging who lived in the mid-13th century, is a classic example of the new mode of using sense language her embodied approach to knowing and loving God has been studied by a number of recent commentators. The highly erotic, even excessive language of this writer, both in prose and poetry, strikes a different note from the intellectualist discourse of the senses found in Origen, and even from the affective power of Augustine's teaching on love as the gravity of the soul. Hadwick is often, in a sense, over the top. And her collection of visions, I think, illustrates that. And I want to just uh, comment briefly on one of these visions. It's vision seven. Like many of the visions recounted by the female mystics, it's a liturgical and Eucharistic vision that takes place in the context of the public ritual of the church. Hodwick begins by describing her destroyed emotional state during a night service at Matins as she waits for Mass to begin. She says... I thought I should not satisfy my lover and my lover not fully gratify me. Then I would have to desire while dying and die while desiring." This fulfillment, she says, is simultaneously suffering in pain as well as sweet love and embraces and kisses. Then she goes on to describe the actual encounter with Christ, which is a directly erotic encounter Using somatic language, both about her physical actions, she says, I fell to my knees, as well as about her emotional states. And in describing her emotional states, she doesn't translate them into the language of internal senses. She presents them as things she actually somatically experienced. First, she sees an eagle flying from the altar, perhaps a symbol of St. John. And then the eagle becomes Christ himself, appearing as a young child who advances towards her to give her the sacrament, the Eucharist. Then Christ transmutes into a handsome man, the way he was when he first gave the sacrament to his disciples at the Last Supper. Hodvik's union with him as she receives the host and as she drinks from the chalice is a deeply erotic one. That is, tasting the Eucharistic elements is experienced as an act of sexual union. This is how she puts it. Then he came to me himself and took me completely in his arms and pressed me to him, and all my limbs felt his limbs in full satisfaction that my heart and my humanity desired. Then I was externally, externally, completely satisfied to utmost satiation. The vision does not end there but moves on to another level that Hadwick describes as the loss of all external seeing of Christ's beautiful body and a sensation, as she puts it, that it was to me at that moment as if we were one without distinction. Nevertheless, she closes this striking vision by insisting on the external and physical nature of what she had undergone, supreme physical satisfaction in her union with Christ. So, is Hadwick's uh, account synesthetic? Probably not in any clinical sense, but I think the Begging's evocation of a mystical orgasm provides a malleability of sensory descriptions that tends to destabilize ordinary forms of sensation. Now, Hadwick has other examples, particularly from her poems, of uh, experiencing love, experiencing love with God that tend to talk about them as simultaneously hearing, touching, and tasting, but she tends to keep them to some degree discreet. They take place at the same time, but they don't interchange or, uh, or meld. Um, to conclude, this embodied language of late medieval women has attracted a lot of study from feminist scholars who have revealed some of the intricate dynamics of this chapter, But we should not forget that such sensate language, which is not based on the ancient distinction between inner and outer senses, was by no means a female monopoly, especially in the late Middle Ages. And widely read mystics like Henry Suso in Germany, Roosbrook in the Low Countries, Richard Rolla in England, rival the women in their appeal to a single sensorium that makes no distinction between inner and outer sensation in attaining mystical contact with God and that often talks about the senses together, but still does not, in a sense, interchange the senses uh, in in any strict sense. So these brief remarks are presented as food for discussion, or food for vision, without pretense of being an in-depth consideration of the issue of synesthesia in Christian mysticism. A more detailed investigation of mystical texts from both Eastern and Western Christianity might turn up far more evidence for strict synesthesia than what I presented here. So I would caution, however, that the term synesthesia, while often used to describe sense language by Christian mystics, nevertheless indicates that we should be more careful in invoking it and more rigorous in evaluating its scope and significance until more detailed studies are done. Above all, I think we need to contextualize this kind of language within the wider framework of the language of sensation in general, both internal and external, in the Christian mystical tradition. Thank you.
2: going to speak about the spiritual senses in the Islamic tradition, in particular in Ibn Arabi today, I must say one of the things we find in the phenomenology and comparative study of religion is sometimes we're forced to create objects of comparison that aren't really there, and I think that's the case in this case. There's a lot to be said about the spiritual senses in Islamic traditions, and very little that I can say explicitly about synesthesia. So I was greatly relieved this afternoon to discover that, as it's defined here, the place to look for Islamic answers would be the Islamic medical tradition, which is not my field, but it wouldn't be in the spiritual side of things. Uh, Having said that, I mean, I I can't help but be reminded that the last time I saw Elliot was at a conference on tantric phenomena in the Abrahamic traditions, which is a bit of a contradiction in terms, despite the Song of Songs. And again, I felt like I was being forced into a a few categories that uh, at NYU it was actually someone else putting on, but in your auspices there uh, nine years ago. So I'm glad to be back here. I did a longer paper really comparing the language of spiritual writers, which constantly parallels what you've just heard about in, in Christian mystics, with the Aristotelian and Galenic language of physiology and philosophical psychology, which which was used by almost all Islamic disciplines when they really wanted to sort of be scientific in the way that we're trying to be scientific here today. Uh, I don't think that language is particularly helpful in talking about spiritual phenomena, but if you uh, want to get into that, uh, are we going to get these papers to people somehow? I guess if they're not put up somewhere on a website or something, I can I'll be glad to to, to send it to people, if, if you'd like, because I'm going to have to cut down to 25 minutes today. And I uh, wanted to say something about the Islamic tradition. I think it's very, very important here, especially compared to uh, uh, other Abrahamic traditions, and that is, uh, when you're trying to do phenomenology, you can't do it very well without phenomena. And yet, one of the fundamental features of the essential esotericism of the Islamic tradition, starting with the Quran is a certain putter and reticence about talking about actual experiences in all the fields of spiritual life and all the disciplines, both artistic and analytical, that are appropriate to those. People always talk about things in terms of the archetypes, that is, prophets, earlier great mystics, and so forth. Very rarely do people say, this happened to me. Um, I mean, you don't have an Augustine. (laughs) You don't have his confessions. And even, um, uh, really, I mean, we... Exegesis, as in Judaism, is most often the most common vehicle in some of the church fathers for talking about these phenomena. But there's fortunately one very rare uh, exception to that rule, which is the great uh, mystic philosopher, the Spanish uh, poet and musician, all these things you could call him, Ibn Arabi. And uh, to sort of the relationship between, um, well, basically in the Islamic tradition, and this is, you can say, you know, you know the dictum, he who speaks doesn't know, and, and so forth. One might say that whoever speaks doesn't know from the Islamic point of view, and whoever knows only writes illusions, and speaks to those who are qualified. So unless you... Are considered qualified and therefore can understand the illusions, it's very hard to get to the phenomena and therefore to do phenomenology. And, and this is something that, I mean, we all face. I, I can remember just when I was arguing with Adam Ray Schimmel back my first years of just in this, this I said, let's do something in Vicar, you know, I'm reading about it all the time. And she finally gave me something, from Sherry, it was so miserably, and you could really, in one day, go to your local music store, get tapes of dhikr of meditation and meditational music, and learn more about dhikr than you could by taking every single Islamic text that's ever been written about Thikr, translating it into English, and studying it closely. And that really applies to every other area of Islamic spirituality as well, it is a it and and all you have to do is just simply go and get out there in the world it's one of these areas where you can't do islamic studies without being an anthropologist and doing field work at the same time as working with texts again the one place and, and we're coming to that in just a second that really is an exception is the writings of Ibn Arabi because he always does his exegesis does the theology does the philosophy but always practically uniquely in this tradition gives examples from his own experience or of people that he actually knew. The other way you can get at this in Islam is by going through poetry because people are allowed to allude to their experiences in poetry but again the poetry is always so ambiguous that unless you've sort of been there and done that you're never quite sure whether your interpretation is doing this. So I might say that the relationship between Ibn Arabi and the Islamic tradition and the rest of the writers in the tradition both before him and after To give you a very concrete example, most of you have seen the stained glass windows of Chartres or someplace like that. Very typological, wonderful mystical stories. The school of Chartres had a wonderful uh, mystical teaching that's in there in the windows. But you have to know your Bible, and you still have to do a whole process of learning about that tradition to make sense of the windows of Chartres. On the other hand, Ibn Arabi is like uh, um, the most complex tanka or mandala that you can ever exist. All of his work is actually trying to explain to us the interrelations between all the spiritual worlds and our everyday experience in this body, in this world. And and am I speaking here, has everybody at least seen some tankas or mandalas, where you have all of these, you know, they generally go from more outward uh, physical concepts towards more and more abstract representations, exactly as the spiritual ascension does in any of our traditions and all of Ibn Arabi's writings work that way except that he works with words rather than pictures and he works downward from the abstract from Allah down towards his, all the manifestations of the are in the world so uh, what filmmakers do I'm going to to use his words and just give his examples about the spiritual senses here. But it's very important to keep in mind how real and down-to-earth this is. And I would mention two films, Grand Canyon, which I use a lot, or Wings of Desire and The Far Away So Close, its sequel. In both of those, you have the filmmakers talking about this knowledge of the breath, the intuitions that guide and direct and that we're in touch with in our lives that take us through our lives, our constant contact with the divine breaths of grace. Uh, the filmmakers do such a wonderful job there of capturing either the Kazdans in Wings of Grand Canyon or Wim Wenders in Wings of Desire, what Ibn Arby's talking about here. So, um, and for those of you who are interested, well, tell us the story. It's very typical of Ibn Arby. I'm going to have to wait to the end of my 25 minutes to get to the actual examples, but he starts out by giving you the theology first. And first of all, um, in, in, in terms of, the, let's see, I'm just going to have to start because I, I, I'm... Mercilessly cutting this paper, but let me start with his description of the reality of human beings and of what the ultimate human being, al San, Kamu, is. that is spiritually what we actually are. And he has this very interesting description of it that helps explain why a spiritual sensation is so different from physical sensation, and yet, in our experience, often uses the same sensory modalities. So he says, "For God entrusted all knowing in the spheres, and He made the human being and son." the total sum of the subtle spiritual connections, rakaik. Uh, rakaik is a thread, a sort of visible thread of light which, which permeate the entire universe. So through these rakaik, these spiritual connections, there exists a spiritual connection extending from the human being to everything in the universe. And this isn't just the physical universe, but all the worlds. In such a way that through those connections, the human being has those matters or commands, more which God entrusted in those things, that they might deliver them to this human being. It is through this subtle connection that the human being who is a knower actually moves that thing when he wants to. So there is nothing in the universe that does not have an influence on the human being, on which the human being does not also have an influence. And this might sound very abstract, but think here for a moment in any of the traditions. You might know how people would pray to Jesus or to St. Teresa or to St. Francis or to... Pick your tradition, pick your saint, or whatever, these people. We consider them dead. What he's talking about is the ways in which the spiritual realities of these beings continue to permeate the entire universe, and therefore, through our connection with them, we are connected uh, to all of the different acts of grace, the karamat, that they're able to, the cities, whatever, again, every every tradition has a different language, but this is what he's talking about. The way reality is structured so that the phenomena of sainthood, prayer, intercession all actually work in, in the lives of people in all these traditions. Now, the next chapter where Ibn Arabi returns to discuss these divine breaths, and perhaps what I should say, in the Islamic tradition, and this is, you'll find equivalents in many Indian traditions, the world is conceived of as an instantaneous creation is not something in time. Creation takes place at each instant. So the, the divine word is being spoken, and in the divine breath, the... the, the um, the the, the dimension of the Spirit, that Trinitarian dimension of the Spirit, is taking place at each instant. So breaths here mean God's creative relationship to all of manifestation at every instant. So the next place he discusses these divine breaths, interesting enough, is in a chapter on the knowledge of Jesus, where it came from and to where it returns. And it is only here that he begins to unfold his larger cosmic vision— uh, which you'll find especially in his Fusus al-Hikam, of uh, the breath of the all-merciful, Nafas rahman as the existentiating life force sustaining and manifesting the entire universe. So now, this is uh, most of what I'll have to say is quotes from this Futuhat. Now, the truth has made us know, or Al-Haq, God, has made us know that the cause of life and the forms of all generated things is only through the divine inbreathing of the Spirit, which is that breath through which God brought faith to life and made it manifest, Thus the prophet said, Surely the breath of the All Merciful is coming to me from the direction of the Yemen, not the country, but from the, the auspicious from heaven. For through that breath, the form of faith and the form of the divine prescriptions were brought to life in the hearts of the people of faith. Thus Jesus was given the knowledge of this divine inbreathing, and through it was able to accomplish all his miracles of revivification. For it was through the breath of the All Merciful that this Christic knowledge came to Jesus. And it ends in the forms that are inspired with life through that breath. This is every being's share of God. And through this breath, each being reaches him since all things return to him. Return to him actually at every instant in each breath. So now he's describing the process of meditation or dhikr through which in meditation we actually return to our source. So when the human being in the course of his spiritual ascension, his miraj to his divine sustainer, his Rabb. Dissolves into his constituent parts such that each realm of creation takes from him in the course of his path what corresponds to that realm. In other words, in the process of meditation we gradually leave behind the dimensions of earth, air, water, fire in our being and eventually leave behind even various forms of psychic attachment. Again, I suspect most people who are being in religious studies have in one way or another participated in these processes of, uh, by which meditation takes us out of our our attachments out of our bodily world and into our deeper spiritual realities. So in the course of this path um, then nothing remains at the end of this process of the human being but our innermost secret, our sir, which is with us from God for one does not see him except through that divine breath and does not hear his speaking except through it. Here again uh, the, the confusion of sense language is very typical uh, because as we know our experiences of grace come uh, at different times in each of these senses. So when that person returns from this place of immediate miswitnessing of the real, and his individual form, which had dissolved during his ascending, is reassembled, each world gives back to him all the corresponding elements which it had taken from him, since each world in itself cannot move beyond its own kind. Thus, all of this is reassembled and gathered together around this divine secret, and it is through this secret that the form, the form of the human being, bows down in its praising God, and praises its sustainer. In the next place he talks about of those who are passionately loved, and what the ashikun of these divine breaths. And here he, he gets in a long discussion of how many of them there are. It perhaps is a um, you have the equivalent of Kabbalistic numerology in, in uh, Ibn Arabi, and I'm never sure whether these numbers are numbers or whether they're really allusions to divine names and all. Uh, perhaps Elliot could help me out, but <laughs> I have the same problem in the Kabbalists as well. So this is the number, forget what the number is, this is the number of the breaths of the all-merciful, in any case many hundreds of thousands or millions, in the human world. And each of those breaths is a separate divine knowing from a special divine self-manifestation, a tajali, a for those levels and not for any other. And whoever has smelled the perfume of those breaths knows their vast extent. I haven't myself seen any of these people, and this, these people enamored of the divine breaths are what he calls the people of smell, whose... Uh, whose experience of the divine is primarily through their spiritual sense of smell, who were also well-known among the people of the path, although most of them whom I have met were among the people of Andalusia, his native uh, Spain. But I did meet up with one of them in Jerusalem and in Mecca, so I asked him one day about a question, and he said to me, Don't you smell something? we could actually get into if we had the time in the, uh, in French it's very, flair I mean when you have a, a number of languages you actually have a parallel to this, the way we use the terms of the sense of smell to refer to our deepest uh, spiritual intuitions. So I knew in the spot that he was one of this people of this spiritual station, of the divine breaths and of the divine spiritual sense of smell. And I had a paternal uncle who also had this station, both physically and spiritually. And we witnessed that about him even before we entered this path in the time of my youthful ignorance. Now, uh, the chapters that I have devoted the most attention to here are two twin chapters in which he tries to break down their Aristotelian um, epistemologies, which were still used by many mystics in his time, which, of course, are based with induction from the spiritual world and from our experience of of the physical world from our spiritual That's an interesting Freudian slip that I can't say the physical world, I I think. Okay, um, calm down. So Aristotelians, of course, uh, their epistemology is based on Induction from our experience of the physical world. And Ibn Arabi is trying to take exactly the opposite tack and argues against that kind of physically reductive epistemology in these chapters. And these passages that I'm going to read to you are the passages where he's trying to illustrate why this doesn't work in describing our experience of spiritual realities. (laughs) So now that you've learned how God has arranged the perceivers and their perceptions, and again, as uh, Bernie said at one point, he, he goes through... The normal notion that we have our five spiritual, physical senses and then the intellect and all of our knowledge comes from one of these six sources, but he says that's just habitual. That's ada. That's just a custom about our usual perception, understanding. That habitual connection is custom matter, matter amra adi. Then you must know that God has other servants for whom He has broken that custom in their perception of the things that are known. So among them are those for whom God has made the perception of everything that is ordinarily or customarily perceived through the ensemble of the faculties, whether the objects of intellection or the objects of sense, that is, as we understand them. He makes that, that perception take place specifically through vision alone, and for others through hearing alone. The alone here I've added, but, but that's what he's saying. And so on with each of these faculties of sense and intellect. Or sometimes that inspired knowing is through other accidental things besides these normal psychic channels, such as a blow, in the case of a famous prophetic hadith that he's going to cite in just a moment, or through motion or stillness, in other words, through vibration. Music can trigger these things, of course, as we know very well. As the messenger of God said, and here he's going to give the example of spiritual uh, uh, sensing through touch or learning through the sense of touch, "'Verily God touched me with his hand between my shoulder blades,' so that I felt the coldness of his fingers tingling in my chest. Then I knew the knowing of all things, from the fir- both first and last. So, and then he explains this. So he included in this kind of knowing every object of knowledge, both sensible and intelligible, that the human creature can perceive. And this knowledge is actualized and real, but not by any of the normal, sensible, or intellective faculties." For we have only mentioned this, I'm going ahead, uh, skipping over a great deal of theology here. For we have only mentioned all of this to support what we intend to ascribe to the people of God, including the prophets and the friends of God. The friends, Aulia, is all the prophets and saints in all the world's traditions. Regarding those forms of knowing that they perceive by ways other than the customary ones. Thus, whenever they perceive these inspired knowings, they ascribe them to that particular sensitive or cognitive quality by which they are customarily perceived. Hence, they say, so-and-so is a master of vision of Nazar. That is, he perceives everything he knows through vision, which is what I myself experienced together with the messenger of God. uh, Ibn Arbi is not known for his modesty, and, um, you know, I mean, he... He had some interviews with the prophet who told him everything he knew. (laughs) He talks about those in other places. And -and so-and-so is a master of hearing, and -and so-and-so is a master of tasting, and a master of breathing and the divine breaths, that is, of smelling, and a master of touch or a master of intelligible meaning, of of understanding everything intellectually. And again, let me just interrupt here and just break in. If you've known artists uh, or lived with them, as I have in uh, in my life, you know how, how much what he's talking about here is actually true. I mean... Um, I, it's very hard sometimes to communicate with somebody who's, who knows everything they know visually, and, and especially when you're trying to translate. I remember ghost writing my artist wife's uh, papers at the Art Institute of Chicago and, from the University of Chicago, and she'd say, "Well, here's the image, you know," <laughs> and you know that I had to make that into you a know, paper. So it, this is—he's talking about real down-to-earth, different potentialities that we find in human beings. Now, we've only mentioned this, oh, I'm sorry. So you must know, then, that the person who is specifically characterized by the divine name, the all-merciful, is specially associated with the faculty of smell, among those different divine powers, psychic powers, which is connected with the fragrant sense, which are these divine breaths. So that person is from the world of the breaths in relation to these alternative spiritual perceptive faculties. So all this, so my brother, has helped you to acquire forms of knowing that you were not aware of before this, which are the knowings of this person who is fully realized in the way station of the divine breaths. And everything which this person perceives, he only perceives from the fragrances of divine manifestation, through the sense of power of smell and nothing else. And I have already met a group of these masters of spiritual sense in Seville, at Mecca, and in Jerusalem. And we conferred with them by communicating through our state, not through speech just as I conferred with another group among the masters of spiritual vision, Nazar Basari, by means of vision alone. So I was asking and replying, and we were asking and replying uh, between us through vision alone, without there being any form of ordinary speech between us, nor any form of conventional signs at all. We do do this with babies, by the way, Um, at least if if you got the right connection. Um, But I was looking at him, and I knew everything he wanted from me. And when he looked at me, he knew everything that I wanted from him. So his looking at me was either a question or a response, and my looking at him was the same, either a question or response to his question or response. Thus we both acquired abundant knowledge between ourselves without ever speaking. Now in in the next chapter he gets to some, what I've got, five five minutes, right? Yeah, Good enough for the examples he gives here. So he finally gets to the phenomena here, uh, chapter 35, encountering the people of breaths and their influences. Um, Real knowing is only what God places in the heart of a knower. Arif here is the. it's not knower with your mind, but the knower with the heart. It is a divine light which God specifically designates for whomever he wills among his servants, whether they be angel, messenger, prophet, saint, or person of faith. So whoever has no unveiling has no real knowledge. So these are the knowers through God, al-ulama billah. the through being here, through the divine breaths. The true knowers, al-arifun, even if they are not a messenger or prophet, for in any case they are following a clear sign from their Lord and what they know of them and what has come from him. So basing himself on the enlightened perception of these people of the breaths who acquire and often communicate all of their spiritual knowing and awareness through one particular sense, he knows that such a person may perceive all the forms of knowing through a single one of the realities, if God so wills. Therefore, he concludes, and here we return to the grounding synesthetic realization of the people of breaths, for each one of the people of God, he has inevitably placed that person's knowing of things in all their powers of thought and sensation, or in a particular power, as we have established, uh, and then I'm going to have to jump ahead. So the person who has knowing through taste becomes taste, and the person who knows through smell becomes smell. That not everyday smell, but the divine uh, attributes that are expressed in those those qualities. In the sense that they can actually effectuate in another person, the inspired knowing which that tasting or smelling effectuates in them. Then that other person becomes effectively connected with that reality, and becomes in himself the reality which is simultaneously being perceived by the original perceiver of these things. Just as a person who is looking in the mirror perceives by looking in the mirror things which they can only perceive at that instant through that mirror. And here he's alluding to his constant use of the image of the mirror for describing the fact that, in fact, human beings are this in the senses and the, all of the qualities by which God perceives his own creation. So Ibn Arabi goes on to give a striking illustration of this kind of synesthetic or sensual phenomena a case spiritual sensual phenomena in the case of the famous contemporary North African Sufi master Abu Madjan and one of his sons. The Sheikh Abu Madjan had a little boy with a black woman, and Abu Madjan was a master of spiritual knowing through seeing. So this little boy, and by the way, Ibn Arabi never met him, but claims that they, he got much of his spiritual knowledge through encounters with Abu Majan in the spiritual world. So this little boy, when he was seven years old, was looking and saying, I see some ships at sea at such and such a place and such and such an event is taking place with them. Then, after several more days, when those ships landed in Bajaya, the city where the little boy lived, it turned out that exactly those things had inspired just as the boy described at that instant. So they asked the boy, how'd you see that? And he replied, with my own eyes. Then they said, no, I only saw it with my heart. And then after that he said, well, no, I only saw it through my father since my dad was present and I was looking at him when I saw what I described to you. But when he went away from me, I didn't see any of that. So this is the meaning of our saying that the realized knower returns to God through the likeness of the form of the reality which he realizes. Hence, Abu Madian's little boy was looking at his father in the way a human being looks at himself in the mirror. So understand, that is, realized that God sees and knows his names through each knower in the mirror of all creation. Now it is like that for every one of those who possess inspired knowing through each one of the ways of these different powers, the spiritual senses. That person sees through each spiritual sense, hears through each faculty, and smells through each faculty, or kua, the power, and they are the most perfect of the whole group of the knowers. And I would just mention briefly that if you get a chance to read this, he goes on to explain that one of the qualities of these aulia is, well, two qualities they have. One is that in the next world, they're exactly like they were already in this world and again if we look at the lives of the saints in Islam or Christianity or in Judaism this is exactly what we find that their inaccessory acts and their acts of, um, of this kind of spiritual connection with large numbers of people often begin already in this world before they pass away so that um, a wonderful film on Therese of Lisieux that we use that, that is a wonderful example of that tied in with her writings But again, uh, you'll find this in every tradition. So he's really alluding to something, and he he goes on to make a great deal of this, that their state in the next life is no different than their state already here in this world. And the second one was interesting. We were talking about it as well. is the incorruptibility of the bodies of those who uh, attain this particular state of high spiritual achievement. Again, something that... Uh, is a phenomena tested in uh, various traditions as well. So uh, the upshot of this, again, I didn't give the first part of the comparison, that from the philosophic and scientific traditions, but it's simply, I hope, to point out that the phenomena of uh, the spiritual senses in all their forms, and this would certainly englobe all the phenomena of synesthesia and artistic and spiritual dimensions, if not in the physiological and Uh, pathologically uh, disease conditions, uh, that this interest in these phenomena is certainly very central in the Islamic tradition and at least I've given you a few examples where you know every mystic in Islam talks about the spiritual dimension, uh, spiritual senses, but all their commentators take it back to the Aristotelian framework of the five, what is called the five inner senses, which are imagination, memory, and and, uh, sort of normal mental functions, which uh... what you find here and i think you can see the comparison already with Professor press was talking about is we're not talking about the same realities and it's very important when scientists and people studying religion get together that at least you know where you're talking about common ground and where you're not the anxiety of ibn Arabi here to make it clear the metaphysical and epistemological presuppositions of what he's talking about is not dictated by theology, it's dictated by the phenomena in question and the phenomena in question are found in all the world's religious traditions. So there's a useful caution here that extends beyond the Islamic traditions to any discussions both between religious traditions and certainly between scientists and those within the spiritual pathways of those traditions that we not be talking about apples and oranges and that it's actually very easy to learn and communicate across these boundaries if we know what we're talking about and we make it clear what we're talking about. So thank you. good I... okay.
3: um, It's good to be back here and um, to be on uh, a panel together with uh, two scholars to whom I, I am greatly indebted. Uh, so it truly is an honor. I want to thank Anne. And a special note of thanks to my dear friend, Barbara Holdridge, who I'm sure uh, had much to do with getting me here again, and to, yeah, for um, investing the time to respond to us. So I'm not going to read most of my paper. I'll read only the, sort of the end of it, but I'll, I'll set it up for you. There are two parts to it. Uh, the first part, which I will only summarize, deals with the confluence of the visual and, and auditory as a kind of phenomenological grounding of uh, the medieval Kabbalistic tradition. And the second part is a specific application of it and um, in terms of, um, as it relates to the major work of uh, medieval Kabbalah, the Zohar, the Book of Enlightenment, from uh, late 13th, early 14th century Spain, as it connects specifically, exegetically, to Exodus twenty fifteen, the seeing of the voices. But let me just briefly summarize the, the first part. Um, one has to start uh, any investigation um, with the term itself, right, uh, Kabbalah, um, which means, in its most precise sense, an oral transmission um, from a master to a disciple, And hence it would be uh, uh, logical to presume that hearing would be the privileged uh, epistemic or sensory mode most necessary to attain a mystical uh, cognition. And in fact that is sometimes emphasized by Kabbalists and it would relate to the more general and iconic dimension of Judaism, especially uh, uh, traceable to the... uh, Deuteronomy, book of Deuteronomy. Yet um, what I was struck from early on studying this material, and I and as I tried to articulate my early studies, culminating in a book published in 1994 through a speculum that shines on vision and imagination, the medieval Kabbalah is ocular centric in nature, as the contemplative state is primarily visual. Um, but I was also struck uh, Early on, that the ocular centrism is marked by a synesthesia, because there is a conflation of the visual and the auditory. Uh, to behold the goal of the mystical practice is to behold the invisible, which is at the same time a heating of the ineffable. Or another way of putting it, the object of contemplation is the literal or hyperliteral body, the body that is the divine name. The tetragrammaton that comprises uh, the totality of the Hebrew letters which is both seen and heard uh, or yet another way of putting it the divine word that is spoken and written concurrently assumes a form of a human visually apprehended in the imagination Um, and um, there's a lot more to say about that Um, but uh, let's leave it leave it at that and turn to the the verse from Exodus which is an important an important exegeti, exegetical locus for this uh, all of all of the nation that is all of the Israelites saw the voices i mean in in its in its in its literal context the voices here uh, probably means they saw the lightning, right, or the thunder, thunder and lightning going together. But in the, in the exegetical imagination, uh, really from Philo through the rabbis all the way up to the Middle Ages, the voices here were not taken to be a natural phenomenon, but rather the voices of God, the voice of revelation. And in particular, the Kabbalistic interpretation or the Zoharic interpretation builds on the earlier rabbinic material and the two opinions that are sort of synthesized uh, in, in the Zohar. One is the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, um, who, who interpreted, they saw the voices as, quote, they saw and heard that which is visible. They saw the fiery word coming out of the mouth of the Almighty as it was hewn upon the tablets. So in other words, for Rabbi Akiva, the seeing of the voices is understood to be a, a mystical vision of the divine speech being inscribed on the tablets. Rabbi Akiva's counterpart, Rabbi Ishmael, interpreted it in a different way, and he understood the saw as not a, not a... Uh, vision, mystical or or sensory, but rather uh as a trope for interpretation. So meant to say when, when the Israelites saw the voices, it meant they immediately interpreted the, the divine word in a kind of proto-rabbinic gesture. Now the Zoharic explanation is is uh kind of based on a synthesis of these two views because it is understood zoharically as a mystical vision of the divine word, but here understood more specifically in terms of the theosophic emanations, the that, that wrote, as they become visible in the last of those emanations, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, or malchut, divine kingship, which is a prism or a speculum through which uh, the upper hidden lights become manifest so the seeing of the voices here the reference is actually the lower seven emanations the seven voices which take shape within the last of um, of those emanations which is uh, the divine word so again we can see the synesthesia synesth, synesthesia at work here because it's the seeing is a seeing of the word that is at the same moment heard, heard as seen, seen as heard, as I think, Augustine? Is it Augustine? <laughs> um, right, but but uh, and another important feature of the, Kabbal- of the Zoharic interpretation, and here I think there are parallels with Ibn Arabi, the, the, that last of the divine emanations, which is the locus of both the vision and the hearing, is the divine image which corresponds ontically to the human imagination. So in a sense, it's a seeing, when one sees the Shekhinah, right, the, the mystic visionary is seeing himself, um, and I'm not going to make it politically correct, because speaking historically, but what the, the Kabbalist sees himself mirrored in the Shekhinah. Right? Um, or it's, okay so in that sense right the, the 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 concealed the concealed deity becomes manifest and the locus of the imagination is the heart so it is a seeing a seeing of the divine image reflected in the heart which is i say again at the same time an attunement to the divine word taking shape but the zoharic authors don't only follow rebi akiva right it's not only this mystical vision, but they also follow Rabbi Ishmael and understand the, the mystical vision that is, a, that is at the same time a hearing of the word as an interpretive, as an interpretive um, exercise. And, and now for the rest of the time that I have, I'm going to read from the, the last part of the paper. As to the specific content of the visionary experience at Sinai, we learn that the, the vision has a decidedly Gnostic element. That is, through the vision, the people were able to gain esoteric knowledge of the divine a- attributes. A clear link between the visionary and epistemological is thus formed. Through the vision, theosophic knowledge, that is, knowledge of the divine emanations, was gained. Knowledge, according to the Zoharic authors, is essentially a vision, of a visionary nature. The word that the Zohar employs for mystical contemplation, his taklut should be rendered as visualization for the visual contemplation of the divine form lies at the heart of mystical knowledge. It is within this framework that one must understand the further connection made between the seeing of the voices and the process of interpretation." Already in Midrashic sources, as well as in Philo, the seeing of the voices described in Exodus 2015 was understood in the sense of a conceptual vision expressed through interpretation. When Israel saw, that is, comprehended the words of the divine revelation, they immediately interpreted them. Drawing upon this ancient motif in Jewish thought, the Zohar thus elaborates on the hermeneutical quality of the visionary experience at Sinai. I'm not going to read the whole passage that I have cited here, but just uh, get to the analysis. Through a vision of the divine glory, the last of the emanations, the people of Israel were able to penetrate the depths of Torah to gain the hidden, which is to say the Kabbalistic secret of the 613 commandments that were thought to be contained in the Decalogue. The ten words of revelation correspond to the ten words of creation, which in turn correspond to the ten divine gradations. According to the Zohar, then, at Sinai, the people of Israel gained knowledge of the esoteric as well as of the exoteric dimension of Torah through a vision of the glory. Thus, by seeing the glory, the Israelite people were capable of acquiring mystical knowledge embodied in the Torah, which from the Zoharic point of view is the form of the formless deity." The Kabbalistic and especially the Zoharic explication of the seeing of the voices is representative of an orientation attested in the older sources. Textual study itself provides the occasion for visionary experience. Indeed, the notion of an inspired or pneumatic exegesis is a well-known feature in Jewish text, especially pronounced in apocalyptic and mystical circles. It is, however, conventionally assumed that such a modality should be contrasted with the more normative rabbinic scriptural interpretation, or midrash, which flourished in a context wherein access to the immediate divine revelation has ceased. Midrashic activity, it is assumed, presupposes a distance of God. But more recent discussions suggest that midrashic activity itself should be viewed as a revelatory mode. The exegesis of scripture is a means to re-experience the seeing of God, particularly at the historical moment of Sinai. Such a hermeneutic, moreover, is based on a varied conception of of temporality. The rabbinic understanding of an ongoing revelation, which unfolds through an unbroken chain of interpretation, is not based on a static conception of the eternity of Torah set in opposition to time and therefore resistant to the fluctuation of historical contingency rather it is predicated on a conception of temporality that calls into question the linear model of aligning events chronoscopically in a sequence stretched invariably between before and after. The rabbinic hermeneutic champions a notion of time that is circular in its linearity and linear in its circularity. The study of Torah accordingly demands that one be able to imagine each day, indeed each moment of each day, as a potential recurrence of the Sinaitic Theophany. Each interpretive venture therefore is a reenactment of the revelatory experience albeit from its unique vantage point. The revelatory status of scriptural interpretation is a central component in the medieval Jewish mysticism as well. Zoharic authors thus uphold a special kind of visionary experience at Sinai. The Israelite people were said to have seen either the upper five emanations directly thereby achieving the level of Moses or the last Gradation as reflecting the upper five. Likewise, the people were said to have seen the divine glory, but it's at the same time all the secrets of the Torah. Indeed, according to a key passage where this point is made, which I cite but not here, uh, these secrets were available to Israel precisely because they beheld the splendor of the glory. Visual experience therefore grounds theosophical comprehension. Gnosis flows out of a mystical Seeing. But, um, again, there are other other passages here that I have, but I won't read, which which, which is, again make make the point that there's an intrinsic correlation between hermeneutics and revelation at work here, and so that um, when one opens up, one opens the Zohar, one is not immediately struck uh, with a first-hand account of visionary experience since these experiences are framed exegetically through the persona of these ancient rabbis. So the, 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 the uh, biographical data pertaining to the, to the Castilian Kabbalists responsible for this text is obscured. It's hidden. It's buried. Um, uh, in fact, the Zohar is operating at four levels of temporality. <laughs> Right. There's the biblical, biblical time, since it's interpreting biblical passages. There is the rabbinic time, since it's presumed that these are the reflections of, of rabbis who lived in the second century. There is their own time in 13th and 14th century Spain, though it's again occluded in the rabbinic persona. And then there's the divine time, since they understand the text of scripture as the unfolding of the divine. So in order to really understand what's going on in the Zohar and to get at the nature of the experience, one has to take that into account. But let me just conclude, though, um, by saying, um, though um, uh, much of what is in the Zohar is based on these earlier sources, um, there's no question that uh, the Zohar. Text goes way beyond the earlier sources in understanding hermeneutical activity as not simply being a divinely inspired state, but is itself the means actually to behold the divine. That is the ultimate mystery uh, for, for the Kabbalists, that the, the God who is without image assumes the form of uh, uh, an image in the Torah. Which is made up of the letters. It is the literally the literal body, right? The body that is uh, the name, and the ultimate the ultimate experience then is is a, a, a seeing of a seeing of the divine through through seeing the shape of the divine imbe- embedded in or encoded in the text, whose whose decoding occurs through the interpretive process. And in that sense, uh, the goal of Kabbalistic exposition is not hearing the word of God, but rather seeing the mysteries or the divine light that are concealed in the letters and words of the text. So central is the visionary element to mystical hermeneutics that the Zohar emphasizes that the Kabbalist, or the one who contemplates the mysteries, of the Torah is called by scripture the maskil, the enlightened one and not simply one who knows for the word maskil derives from a root word which connotes comprehension through seeing but this seeing is a, as I've said a vision of the word and hence a vision that is at the same time a hearing the peak mystical experience is a reenactment of the Sinaitic epiphany a hearing of what is seen and a seeing of what is heard.
4: First of all, I would like to extend my thanks to our three panelists for three very insightful presentations. And in the interest of time, I'll keep my comments uh, brief and ask a few questions that I hope will generate a thought-provoking discussion. So Professor McGinn cautions us in applying the term synesthesia to Christian mystics and theologians. The difficulties inherent in coming to a conclusion about the nature of a medieval author's sensory experience should preclude anything but a speculative study of what might seem seem like cross-modal or synesthetic sense perceptions. After all, a historian of religions is primarily engaged in the study of texts. Furthermore, most of the texts studied by Professor McGinn do not give first-person accounts of sense perception. Rather, as he points out, they employed sensory language in order to teach others about the encounter with God. Professor McGinn reminds us of the importance of distinguishing discursive synesthesia from first-person reports of synesthetic perceptions. Although some texts, such as the narratives of the Desert Fathers, do incorporate discursive synesthesia in a manner suggestive of perceptual synesthesia, Professor McGinn convincingly demonstrates how neither perceptual nor discursive synesthesia played a crucial role in the Christian tradition. Instead, he calls our attention to an important distinction within the tradition between the external senses and the inner or spiritual senses. It is in the context of discussions of the spiritual senses that unusual sensory language is used. The evidence presented by Professor McGinn suggests that research on eidetic imagery, that is, mental images devoid of any object or stimulus, may be more important for understanding the spiritual senses, irrespective of what the purpose of such sensory language is, um, whether it is discursive or theological, or as a report of perceptual experience. Professor Morris also highlights the importance of the spiritual senses within traditions of Islamic mysticism. He discusses how in the writings of Ibn Arabi, a single spiritual sense is employed as a mode of divine knowing. Unlike Professor McGinn's discussion of Augustine, for whom the spiritual senses are unified in the heart in a process of sensing that which transcends ordinary sense perception, For Ibn Arabi, the spiritual senses are treated as autonomous units that engage the divine breath. Thus, both Christianity and Islam present the spiritual senses without placing significant discursive emphasis on synesthesia. However, because of a paradigmatic scriptural passage, the Jewish tradition gives a more central and prominent role to discursive synesthesia. And Professor Wolfson illuminates the centrality of the revelation at Sinai for Jewish mystical traditions. He demonstrates that the epistemology of medieval Kabbalah derived from both from seeing and from hearing. For the Kabbalists, the object of mystical knowledge was simultaneously seen and heard. The language used in articulating this epistemology involves an interplay of image and word in which the visual can be expressed in auditory terms and vice versa. To demonstrate the centrality of this cross modal language Professor Wolfson provides various perspectives on the statement and all the people saw the voices from Exodus 2015. Significantly, he shows how medieval Jewish mystics combined rabbinical commentaries on the cross-modal language of Exodus 2015 with the epistemology and ontology of Kabbalah, and thus he demonstrates that throughout many centuries a discursive form of synesthesia has been important in the Jewish tradition. This hermeneutic of revelation remained accessible to the Kabbalists in their reading of the Torah, which is not merely a text, but also a revelation of God akin to what Moses experienced at Sinai. And a few questions. Is it fair to say that while central to Jewish mysticism, neither perceptual nor discursive synesthesia played a crucial role in Islamic or Christian mysticism? If this is the case, to what extent can the difference be traced to the interpretation of one verse, namely Exodus 20.15? Second, the discussion of the spiritual senses put forth by Professors McGinn and Morris raises important questions about other modes of sensory perception. To what extent do Augustine and Ibn Arabi share a common conception of the spiritual senses? Are there significant differences in the role of the spiritual senses for these two thinkers and their respective traditions? Does the evidence from these traditions suggest that the spiritual senses, whether considered in discursive or perceptual terms, could be understood as generating eidetic images, that is, images devoid of an external object or stimulus. And might research on eidetic imagery thus provide a more promising bridge between scientists and humanists regarding research on sense perception than synesthesia? Assuming others find Professor Wolfson's case for the centrality of cross-modal language in the Jewish traditions of the revelation at Sinai compelling, is there any evidence that the Jewish mystical tradition Encourage the cultivation of synesthetic perceptions as a means of knowing God? For example, could the manner in which the Kabbalists were taught to read the Torah be construed as a practice designed to cultivate synesthetic perceptions of God? And with that, I'll leave it to our panelists to discuss. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.